Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Eden Foods, the most trusted name in certified organic clean food. When you shop online at EdenFoods.com, enter the coupon code ORGVIEW to receive 20% off any regularly priced items, excluding cases. For other promotional offers, please visit TheOrganicView.com's website. And don't forget to check out our contest section. Today, my guest is Anne Larkin Hansen, and we're going to be talking about her amazing book called The Organic Farming Manual, a comprehensive guide to starting and running a certified organic farm. Currently in the United States, genetically modified foods are not labeled. The only way that you can find out really what's in your food is to take responsibility for it. You can either get to know your grower or opt to do what many folks are, which is starting an organic farm. However, starting an organic farm is not as easy as you would think. I know. My parents uh, (laughs) moved up to the country when I was little, and I wish that they had a copy of this book when they began. Because let me tell you something, if you don't know what you're doing, not only will you quickly become disenchanted with the thought of having your own organic farm, but you can really waste your money on things that you don't necessarily need And, you know, there are a lot of different things that you should look for, especially if you're looking to buy your own land. So I would like to welcome to the show Anne Larkin Hansen. Good afternoon, Anne, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, June. Thank you for coming on the show. I mean, my goodness, you are such an amazing person. Can you tell our audience just how fabulous you are? Because I know how fabulous (laughs) you are, um, and I look forward to, to seeing you again at the Mother Earth News Festival. Uh, but so many people out there that are not familiar with your work, uh, they, if they don't buy a copy of this book, they at least need to know all, all the things that you've done. Well, June, I think that the one thing I do that maybe some other people don't do is I write about it. There are thousands of fabulous organic farmers out there, and I've had the good fortune to talk to a lot of them. Um, we've been on our farm here for 20 years. Um, I've been married for 30 years. We have three kids that turned out better than we deserve. Um, we bought this place about 20 years ago. It's an old dairy farm. We've converted it to kind of a multi-purpose farm. And I've also worked as a, a professional journalist for somewhere between 25 and 30 years. And um, I've done a lot of freelancing on agricultural topics. And I also worked on a statewide agricultural newspaper here in Wisconsin called The Country Today. And that was fabulous because every week you go out and you go on to other people's farms and you talk about what they're doing and why they're doing it and it was just a tremendous learning opportunity Um, and I was involved with the Wisconsin Women's Sustainable Farming Network that was founded by a wonderful uh, sheep dairy woman down in Chippewa Falls and that was a great learning experience so I was fortunate in that I had so many others to learn from you can't put everything that is in this book you can't figure it all out on your own little farm you've you've got to go out and learn and i guess that's that's what i've been trying to do and i think your approach is really very smart because the thing is is that especially growing up on a farm i know that when we had certain problems uh you know you can use so much common sense but then there are points where you're so overwhelmed and frustrated that 
uh, if somebody points something out to you that just might be a simple solution, I mean, it's it's during <laughs> yeah. those times when you're just like, you know, why didn't I think of that? And you know, that's that's what experience is all about. So the fact that you reached out to so many different people that have really interesting stories and are doing different things, I think that that was a really smart way to go about bringing in kind of, uh, you know, the, the different types of methods as well as expertise into uh, this book. And, I mean... Well, thank you. And, and it was the best job in the world. I got paid for doing what I wanted to do, which was learn more about <laughs> organic farming. So it was just terrific. And, uh -huh. and I also learned that farming is... You, you have the same sets of organic tools, but they are applied in very unique ways to every farm. Every farm and every farmer is unique. You do learn that. And it's interesting because, you know, you don't really think about that when you think about organic farming. You just think that, oh, well, you know, so-and-so has an organic farm, but what does that really mean? You know, and there are a lot of different elements that uh, create what is known as an organic farm. I mean, it depends upon what you're producing. Um, are you going to be operating a business in which you're going to sell what you grow, or is it, you know, for your own private consumption? Uh, so many different elements to, to consider. And yeah, and and fortunately now we have the internet, which we didn't have when I moved out here. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of information about organic farming on it, but it's confusing, especially if you're just getting into it. Um, you want to try different things. You're not sure exactly where you're headed. You don't know the the terms and stuff like that. What we really tried to do in this book, and it was it was actually Story Publishing's idea. Um, and what we really tried to do was just give a, a basic introductory text, text, you know, this is what organic farming means. This is why it happened. I don't think um, many people think about the fact that, you know, 100 years ago, everything was organic. And what happened? Why did we have this huge separation between conventional and, and organic agriculture? So I talk about that. We talk about, you know, why biodiversity is so important on an organic farm and why there's so many different farms so Every you know, there's dairy farms and livestock farms and vegetable farms and apple orchards, and each one of them uses the organic tools that you've got in your organic toolbox in a little different way. Um, so, and and we just wanted to pull all that together so you could see the big structure of organic farming, you know, how it came to be and what it is. Thank you. Now, let me ask you a question: Why is it that the agribusiness did not go organic? That's, you know, that is really interesting. Um, and because, well, first of all, there's less money in organic for agribusiness than there is in conventional um, organic. But basically, after World War II, you had, this country had built an awful lot of munitions factories. Uh, and they were making all sorts of um, chemicals and things that, uh, you know, were going into bombs. All of a sudden, we didn't need bombs anymore. And as, uh, you know, a lot of those chemicals are actually good um, synthetic fertilizers. There's also um, just they were discovering things, you know. Shortly afterwards, um, DDT came online, and you know that was nobody. And and it was marvelous. It seemed to just take care of everything. And and all of a sudden, you could call a spray truck when you had soybean aphids or whatever it was the uh, pest du jour was, and they'd show up and spray it. You didn't have to go out and cultivate it. You didn't have to worry about how far your seeds were spaced apart. You didn't have to worry about rotating your crops. All of a sudden. Farming was really, really simplified because you could use chemicals instead of thoughtful management. 
so and there was money in it for agribusiness and the farmers liked it because it solved a lot of problems real easily and fast and nobody really thought much about the long-term consequences that it would that it did actually deplete the soils um, that we were making our pest problems ultimately much worse by spraying. Some of this wasn't understood. Some of it just wasn't talked about. So that, I think, is why conventional agriculture went down the route they did. It was easy and it was profitable. Profitable. That's unfortunately um, you know, something that you try to be. But the thing is, is that, uh, as we found out, there are many organic farms who are profitable. And that's something that really isn't talked about. And you actually took the time to mention that um, being certified organic is actually a good marketing tool. Oh, there's, there's so many myths out there still about organic agriculture that go back to the 1970s and the back-to-the-land movement and the many people that unfortunately went out and tried to do things and failed because they didn't know what they were doing and, you know, just didn't have what it takes. We are more than 30, mile, or 30 years down the road from that now, and we have studies. We have side-by-side -side field trials. We have economic studies. If you go to the uh, Minnesota Sustainable Ag website, you'll find their surveys of organic farmers that continue to show, yeah, organic farming is more profitable overall. Um, you can go to the study by Dr. Uh, Luann Lohr of uh, Georgia University, State of Georgia University, who took uh, specific counties and looked at the economies in those counties and found out that organic farming not only was better for the farmers once they're up and established, um, it's also better for the overall rural economy. It's putting more people back on the land. It's, it's doing more locally. It's keeping that money there. Um, so it's a tremendous boost, both the individual farmers and the rural economies. Thank you. Now, my next question for you is, what are the four principles of the organic approach? Well, I will tell you. <laughs> um, the first one, and this is extremely important, is that organic farming is proactive. It is not reactive. You've got to be thinking ahead of the bugs. You've got to be thinking ahead of the weather. You've got to be thinking ahead of your soil depletion problems so that instead of going out one morning and saying, oh, no, my orchard is full of tent caterpillars. You've been out there for the past two weeks every morning watching for those things because you know they're coming, and then you get them as soon as they're there. Um, you know that if you get a heavy rainfall on, a, on the bare soil that lies between row crops, um, it's going to wash downhill. So what do you do? Well, you figure out a way to put in a living mulch or maybe a mulch that you planted the previous fall and it's died over the winter, and it lays there like a blanket, protecting all that bare soil from going anywhere except, and it just stays there right where you want it. So that's very important. Uh, the second one is that when you decide to do something on your organic farm, you have to think, well, is it, you, you have to think, big picture, not is it just going to solve this little particular problem. You have to think how it's going to impact every other part of the farm system. If I take the manure from the chicken shed and put it on the orchard, that means it's not going on the garden. So how does that impact the garden? Does the garden need it that year more than the orchard? I mean, that's a real simple example, but you really have to think in these big cycles, big pictures. Um, and I don't think we do that with conventional agriculture. It's very, you know, much, oh, here's a crisis, let's fix that now, and we tend to create a whole bunch of other problems instead. Um, the third principle is you have to be observant. 
Um, you've got to just pay attention all the time to what the bugs are doing, to how fast the grass is growing. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it is. Um, my whole rotational grazing system that we do with our beef cattle here is based basically on how fast the grass is growing, so I pay really close attention to that. That determines how fast I'm going to move my cattle through those paddocks. The fourth principle is um, you've got to keep experimenting. You've got to keep trying new things. You've got to keep looking for the weak spots in the system and saying, okay, what can I tweak here? What can I try that will fix this? So that things are continually improving. We're not trying to just maintain things. We're trying to keep making them better, make things more efficient, make things more fertile, make things more you know, sustainably productive. So those, those are the four principles as I see them. And I agree. I mean, if you think about these four principles, you really should remain on track and not get overwhelmed and not get caught up in many of the issues that novice farmers face. I mean, I hear it all the time uh, when people find out that I grew up on a farm. They're like, oh, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to get some land and I want to move up to the country and I want to get this, uh, I want to start this organic farm. And I'm like, yeah, well, yeah. what are you, what are you going to do there? And they just look at me and they're like, well, you know, have some cows, have some vegetables. And it's, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> E-I-E-I-O, it, it should be so easy. Uh, and the thing is, is that, once again, I don't uh, tell people don't do it. I tell people you should do it if it's something that you want to do. But the bottom line is it's a huge commitment. Farming is not the type of occupation that one decides to do and then says, oh, well, you know, something I think I'm going to go on vacation for two weeks. Uh-uh. doesn't work that way. If it is <laughs> if it is raining, if it is sleeting, snowing, doesn't matter what the weather condition is, if you have chores to do, you get out there and you do it because, unfortunately, the magical elves that do not exist are not going to do <laughs> the work for you. And well, you know, anybody who's raised kids <laughs> knows that. It's, it's actually easier than raising kids, I think. But, yes, you are absolutely right. You you really have to be there, um, and you have to have a plan, and you have to think ahead, and you have to educate yourself. But you know what? Um, once you get into it and things, and you start to get the rhythm of when things need to happen and getting it done and stuff, it's it's just joyful. It really is. I still remember the night I was driving home. I just finished um, setting out our winter feeding area. We feed our cattle out in the hay field so the manure gets recycled right back into the dirt. Um, and I'm driving home, it's freezing, it's late, I haven't got dinner ready, and I'm on this tractor hunched over, and there's a full moon coming up on my right as the sun's going down on my left, and I'm thinking, this is so much better than an office cubicle. I'm so glad I did this. <laughs> so, so, yes, you can farm. It does take a huge commitment. You do need to prepare yourself, but it is wonderful. It's a lovely, lovely life. Now, um, speaking of which, uh, how lovely it can be, uh, it can be lovely especially if you don't throw it at your back and basically <laughs> uh, do all sorts of work that you are not accustomed to doing. Uh, let's face it, it is heavy-duty work, and it's not for everybody. I mean, there are some women that I know that if they break a fingernail, you know, it's a bad day for them. And the thing is is that uh, when you have work to do, uh, if you have to bale hay, doesn't matter what it is. Bale hay, shovel the cow manure, um, fix fencing, whatever the case may be. 
there is no time for beauty queens and the same thing for the men if you think that you're going to sit there and uh you know not develop calluses on your hands uh this is not for you and the reason that i stress this is because i've i've met people that have said yeah you know what i tried it just wasn't for me and once again all the more reason why they should have bought a copy of the organic farming manual because <laughs> it really gives you a very good um good look at all the different things that you really should know and now for yeah. the people who are really into farming there's so much information in here that will make your life so much easier and one of the areas that you talk about, it's not a big section, but it's important to talk about, and that's ergonomics. Now, why is this so important? Um, because farming is not only one of the most dangerous occupations in the country, it takes a toll on your body unless you um, guard yourself against that. And there are actually very specific things you can do, you know, so that um, you, you don't throw out your back every spring when it's time to get the garden tilled and, uh, you know, you aren't uh, spraining your ankle running to get out of the cow yard because you forgot to shut the gate and the bull's loose, uh, things like that. So and it is important. Um, I actually, when I was a reporter uh, for the ag paper, this had not really occurred to me till I went to, uh, did a story on a woman who specialized in dealing with farmers who had aches and pains and, and chronic problems um, just because of the way they farmed. Um, and we had such a tremendous response to that story that I really started looking into it further. And um, I guess there's a, a few things that people could look at. Um, I, I, I talk about this just briefly in the book. Um, there's much more information available. Um, some of the things are so basic, like when you're lifting the hay bale or the water buckets or whatever the heck it is you're lifting, um, keep your back straight. You know, keep your back straight. Lift with your legs. Don't don't lift with your back. Um, don't reach out and carry heavy weights far out in front of you. You got to pull them in tight to your body. Um, it's much easier to carry two buckets, uh, two small buckets of water than one great big heavy one. You know, an extra trip, so what? Um, if you are doing a really highly repetitive task, um, do something else for a while. Do that for a little while, then go do something else, which is not hard in farming because there's always something else to do. Um, uh, just so break it up. I would also suggest paying close attention to your footwear. Um, I remember talking to Jim Garrish, who is just a, a rotational grazing guru, and he said, yeah, he'd been having like foot and leg problems till he's got new boots. His heels had worn funny, and he was walking funny, and that was causing most of his problems. I know um, when we bought a good mattress, that took care of all my shoulder and hip problems. I mean, it so um, you, you need to think about this things. Farming is extremely physical, and you, you presumably want to be doing it for a long time. So it's extremely important to take care of yourself, get equipment um, that suits you, um, that is easy for you to use, doesn't make you sore after a while, and just follow a few basic rules. So those, those are all pretty important things. And it's interesting that you mentioned footwear because the thing is, is that uh, you really do need to have good boots. And oh, the reason yeah. that I say boots and not sneakers is because you, uh, on the farm, you could uh, you could step on equipment that might pierce your footwear. Uh, you might, you know, let's face it, if you're on a farm, chances are you will step in cow manure, chicken manure, some type of manure. And the thing is, is that you really want to have clothing that's worn just outside. Well, only, only if you've got a livestock farm. Um, it, once again, we come back to that thing that, you know, everything about farming, um, especially organic farming, is extremely site-specific, 
specific, mm. specific to the farmer. If I was raising a small vegetable garden in Southern California, I would probably be wearing sandals. Um, as it is, I'm raising, you know, beef cattle and chickens and stuff up here in northern Wisconsin, and so I have, you know, some really nice leather boots. <laughs> but um, So I, I would say you just need to know what the potential problems are, what the potential solutions are, and then find the one that fits, make so the boot fits. That's, that's what we need. I used to wear those trendy clogs and because I thought that they were good for your feet, this and that, and then I got stung by a yellow jacket, and I said, okay, uh, the socks are going on, and so are the boots. So, oh yeah, um, we have we have plenty of ground wasps along our fence line. Yeah, That's another good reason for boots. Yes. So but those are good. You want those things? They're pollinators and they're biodiversity. So they usually don't bother me. But the thing is, is that this hurt. <laughs> and <laughs> oh, yeah. But it, it taught me a lesson not to, you know, not to go out with clogs on. And um, uh, from from there on out, I always wore. A pair of thick cotton socks with um I have boots that I specifically wear for my garden work and you know, if I'm mowing the lawn doing you know stuff like that um and you know it doesn't matter to, to me I just think that you should have a good pair of shoes or, or rather boots or something that's comfortable but will protect your feet regardless of what it is that you're exposing yourself to Oh, absolutely. Um, but do you see what you just did? You you found the absolutely correct solution for yourself. That's not going to hurt anything else. Exactly. <laughs> That's what we're trying to do. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting that, um, you know, you read about accidents that occur, and it's just something simple, um, like having the right equipment or the right attire to wear. Um, you know, you, you really should have... I remember once I went uh, horseback riding and I had shorts on, and I learned mm-hmm. my lesson once again because the horse, yeah. uh, the pasture where we were riding, we went through this area where there were a lot of wild rose bushes, and yeah, I'll <laughs> never forget that. So uh, you know, <laughs> you live, you learn. Uh, yeah. But yep. in regards to the equipment, now there are a lot of people who. Um, would like to have all sorts of different fancy equipment and tractors and whatnot, but what are the basic pieces of equipment that you should have? And do you have any resources that you can suggest for purchasing really good uh, used equipment or places where you can uh, connect with people that you might be able to or where you might be able to find good quality equipment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, equipment, once again, is specific to the type of farming you're doing and the scope of it. So a vegetable farmer, if, you, if you've got a tenth of an acre and you're just feeding you and a couple other families, you can do it with a shovel, but you want a good, sharp shovel, right? Um, if I had a bigger garden, I would want a tiller. If I had a really big garden, I'd want a tractor with several implements. Um, what we have here is um, I mostly, we have just a small garden for the family. My cash crops are, are basically beef cattle, hay, and apples. And what I have is a couple tractors, both bought used. I've got a round baler. I've got, oh, boy, I've been through a three-bottom plow, a grain drill, a disc, a um, couple different types of hay rakes. Um, we used to have a square baler. I got rid of that. Um, you, you go through equipment until you find exactly the right set that's going to work for your particular farm. I think um, for most farms, a nice tractor is is really essential. Um, 
but there's different sorts. You know, if you're growing row crops, you'll need a tractor that's set up high so you can um, run the cultivator down the row crops. If I was doing a vegetable garden um, where things weren't going to be too tall and I could still get the tiller and I'd want something low, it's just a lot more stable and less tippy when you're making those corners. If I was doing woods work, I'd certainly want a low-set tractor. Actually, I'd probably want an ATV and a couple other things. Um, so you you really have got to suit the equipment to the farm. And to do that when you don't even know what's out there is can be hard. But there are um, things you can, you know, places you can go and people you can talk to to figure out what you need. Um, I guess there is nothing wrong to going to an equipment dealer, especially the ones that deal in both new and used, which is most of them these days. They know their stuff. They're there. They have a reputation to protect. And they will talk to you about it and help you figure out what it is that you need equipment for. So, so that's going to be important. Um, there are, I'm trying to page through the book here, and, and uh, we did have some other things. There's some other ideas that you can think about. Um, one is if you're not sure about equipment, you don't have the budget, you don't know what it's going to cost, think about hiring a custom operator. In most neighborhoods, you can find somebody who will come and till your garden, somebody who will make your hay, things like that, and that's a nice way to go for the first couple years. You can often rent equipment from dealers if you're trying to figure out what exactly works for you. I remember I rented a, my first square baler, just hated it. It was awful. <laughs> Um, I'm not going to tell you the make of it, but man, it had a fan belt system that had been, or a belt system that must have been designed by an engineer who they never let out of the cubicle, you know. And if you're trying to switch mm -hmm. a broken belt out when the rain is coming, it's just a nightmare. So renting can be a real good option. Um, and then I would talk to other farmers. I would go online and look for small-scale farming equipment. I know uh, Eugene Canales out in California sells a lovely. Um, line of European equipment that's specifically designed for small-scale farms. Um, there's, um, we have a couple people right in our region here. Um, Martin Diffley is a specialist in some of the small-scale used equipment. Um, and if, you know, if people want to know, I would have to go back and look up some of this information. If they wanted to contact me through the publisher, I could probably get some answers to them. Or just go start looking around online. You will find things that you need. Egg extension agents know a lot too. They're they're really useful. Yeah, my I remember my father uh, was able to get a lot of great direction and made a lot of great relationships within the uh, cooperative extension in the county yeah. uh, yep, that we lived in. And also, I just want to suggest that if you have a neighbor that's also uh, growing or raising the same type of livestock that you're interested in. Talk to your neighbor, and uh, you know, it, it, the farming community is very tight knit, and it's also very small. And sometimes, if they have equipment that they're looking to sell because they want to either buy new stuff or, um, you know, they they just uh, are, are will oh, be yeah. open to helping you out. You never know because I remember we bought one piece of equipment from a neighboring farm, uh, and I guess this gentleman was at a point where he was unable to take care of everything on his own and you know he just cut down the size of his operation which you know depends upon where you're located it, it does happen i mean yes yeah and, so and you have to noodle around locally 
Um, you can buy equipment across the country. It's expensive. The shipping will kill you, and then where are you going to get parts for it? I would really suggest looking locally. Um, and, and like you said, you're, you're so right on there. Yeah, talk to the other farmers. Go to the farmer's market and talk to those people. They're right in the neighborhood. They probably know everything that's going on. They probably know who's thinking of selling what. Um, watch for the auction notices on Craigslist or in the local farm papers. Listen to the local farm radio, whatever you can find. When you talk to your ag extension agent, say, how do I find out about field days? And you go to these field days, and people lead you around their farms, and they show you, well, this is how I set up my fencing, and this is what I've got for equipment, and this is how we you know, pick our potatoes, whatever. Um, it, it's, there's just so much, th- so many information sources to take advantage of out there. And then you, also you aren't feeling like you're out there all by yourself. I think that's a hard thing for a lot of new farmers as you get out there and it's just you and the, you and the fields, you know, and you, <laughs> you don't exactly know what to do next. So you really do have to reach out, and not only for equipment but for information, for insight, you know, whatever people, for companionship. It's wonderful. You can do it. <laughs> Thank you. Now, my next question for you is when it comes to actually finding the farmland, where do you even begin to look? We have had um, so much um, interest in this subject. I actually gave talks on this at the Mother Earth News Fairs in uh, uh, Puyallup, Washington. and uh, I can't pronounce it either. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I've been struggling with it. And um, in Seven Strings, Pennsylvania last year, and there was so much interest that story publishing asked me to do a short book on how to find good land for your organic farm. Now, I just turned in the manuscript. I think it'll be about out in about a year, but we do devote a whole chapter to that in this uh, in the organic farming manual because it is such an important topic. Um, there's a lot of beautiful land out there. A lot of it you just can't farm, and a lot of it you, maybe you can farm, but not the kind of farming you want to do. So you have to understand what you need to farm and maybe some of what you can do without. I think that's very important. Um, You've got to have good water. You've got to have dirt that will grow things. And you've got to have markets where you can sell things if that's indeed what you plan to do is sell some of your product. If your market's in California and you're in Nebraska, that's, that's going to be a tough sell. And that's a very good point because if you're interested in do in starting a farm for your own personal needs, that's one thing. Right. Uh, you can pretty much get away with trial and error. But if you're seriously looking to start a business, you really should have a business plan. And yes. you really yes, yes, need yes. to do the research. You need to see, okay, if you're going to uh, grow a particular crop or if you're going to raise livestock, say if you decide that, you want to start raising sheep for the wool. Um, there's a lot of information that you need to find out ahead of time because, once again, it's a big responsibility and it's a big commitment. And once you make the purchases, uh, you know, the, there's really little time for on-the-job training when it becomes a business because you can lose your entire investment. So well, I would recommend starting slow and small and having another source of income. Because Me too. <laughs> I have seen enough farmers crash and burn because they went out, invested so much money, um, put everything they had into it, um, and just couldn't sustain it long enough to make it a going concern. And that that is really an issue. Now, let me ask you a question. In regards to the farmland itself, one of the most important things to look at is after you've determined what it is that you want to grow, of course, or raise – 
and uh, where you want to be when you're actually looking at property. Let's talk about soil conditions as well as water conditions. What do you look for with soil? Um, you look for a lot with soil. I, and I'll come back to that, but I just wanted to say I, I would look at water first. If, if there's not water I'm, and it's not good water, I wouldn't even bother with the soil. But we can talk about the soil right now. Um, I would look for soil that was, oh, boy, I'm trying to think of all the things that I would look for. It's got to be soil that if it's not real fertile, it has the potential to become fertile without you having to invest, you know, everything you've got in making it fertile. And by that I mean soil needs to to grow a good crop. Soil needs a certain level of organic matter. It needs some level of the 15 essential nutrients, you know, which the big ones are nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. We've all heard about those. But there's also calcium, sulfur, sulfur manganese, boron. You need all those things, and you spend you need that organic matter because that's what holds them in the soil, too, and makes it available to the plants. You need soil that's not too dry or too wet, not too sandy or too pure clay. Um, you need soil that's deep enough. If you've only got an inch of topsoil and beyond that, it's, it's you know, just worthless, and not worthless, but subsoil with no fertility at all, that's going to take a lot to bring that back. So if I was looking at soil, I would want... Oh, I'd want a minimum depth, I think, of four to six inches of good topsoil. I would want something that was in the range from, I like lighter soils, but, you know, you can farm on anything from a sandy loam or loamy sand, you know, up to um, a a fairly heavy clay. Um, Those are wetter and, and colder in the spring, of course. I would want soil that had organic matter in it. And, and some of this is pretty simple to see. You can go out there with a shovel and just stick it in and, and feel the soil and squeeze it. If it doesn't clump together at all, you know, that's, and, and I'm assuming the soil is somewhat moist here. If it doesn't clump together at all, that's, that might not have enough organic matter. It would be too sandy. If it just folds into a little clay ball that you can make a pot out of and fire and sell, um, that might be a little heavy clay without enough organic matter. Now, there's ways you can remedy the soil with cover crops and, and um, adding nutrients and amendments, I should say. Um, but a lot of that takes time and money. So you really have to consider closely. You've also got to consider the slope of the land. You know, steep land is tough to farm if you're growing crops. If you're growing apple trees, you probably want a slight slope to your land. Um, what else is is the soil flooded in the spring? Does it dry out easily in the middle of the summer? There's many things to consider here. But the overall, you just want a basically moderately to very fertile soil that's not too wet or too dry. <laughs> that's, it's a complicated topic. It really is. Now, if you have the opportunity to have your soil tested, how do you go about doing that for a farm? I mean, is it the responsibility of the existing owner to provide that to you, or is that something that you could say, okay, well, you know what, I'm interested in purchasing this parcel of land, but before I make a commitment, I would like to see the test test results from the soil testing, and who should pay for it? Um, I would say the buyer normally pays for that, at least that's standard as as far as I've ever heard. Um, So, and if I was doing it, I would go online to my um, state ag website or talk to the extension agent. They will know what soil labs are available in the area. They're very specific about how you take a soil sample. You know, typically you would take a number of samples from a field, mix them, you take them 
and bag them up and send them off to the lab, and you will be able to give the lab's instructions on what you want to um, sample for. Now, the last time I did it, I would imagine around the country, you know, soil samples could run anywhere from 20 to 100 bucks, but it is well, well worth the effort because then you know what you're looking at. I would also get a soil type map from the county ag extension agent, or you can get it off the National Resources Conservation Service website. You can make your own um, map there, and then read the descriptions of the soil types because those are really good. They'll tell you exactly, you know, what the potential fertility of the soil is, what how erodible it is, how erodible, how eroded how erodible it could be, how eroded it actually is often, they will tell you, and a bunch of just extremely useful information. And I guess um, if, you, if you want to find things out fast, that's what I would do. I would get the soil maps, read the type descriptions, and then pull a soil test and get it off, sent off for testing, and normally the buyer would pay for that. Thank you. Now, another question that I have is in regards to the, um, the water. The water quality, as you said, the water is the most important resource to look at because if you don't have good water and if you if also if you don't have enough water, right, you could be in a lot of trouble. And so, if you don't own the water, that's important west of the Mississippi. Yeah, that's. Can you explain uh, some of the situations that are going on west of the Mississippi because uh, that's. Um, not necessarily the case east of the Mississippi, and you know, for people that are not too familiar with um, why that's such an issue, it might also help explain why water is really our most precious commodity. Yes, and and there are so many issues surrounding this, as as you know, of course, you report, you talk about them. Um, west of the Mississippi, Mississippi is a much drier climate than the eastern half of the county, uh, the country on the whole. And what has happened there since white people or Europeans began settling there is that there wasn't enough water to go around. Not everybody could have enough water to run their farms. And to, make, to oversimplify a very complicated story, in most states west of the Mississippi, if not all, um, the water rights, the water does not come with the land. It's a separate entity. So if you buy land, that doesn't mean you own the water. You have to get the water separately. And if I was buying land west of the Mississippi and I'd found a place that I was interested in, the first thing I would do would be to get expert legal advice on whether the water rights that they were offering to sell, you know, in, in, as a package with the land were going to be enough, were they good enough, or that would I have enough water, would I own the water. East of the Mississippi, in most places up till now, when you buy the land, it's just assumed that you get all the water on it. There's state regulations about shorelines and surface waters, but basically you're going to get the water. But the other issue is, and um, this is, I wish I would like to see this discussed more in the organic community, is that so many rural water supplies are impaired. Um, they have, they are contaminated often by either agricultural chemicals or bacteria, you know, E. coli is, is a common one. That um, Actually, I shouldn't say that. E. coli is an indicator bacteria. It's ubiquitous in the environment, but if it's coming out of your well, that indicates that other bacteria that can cause illness may be present. Um, so you would definitely, definitely, if you're interested in a place, get the water tested. Um, and, they're, you know, they're showing when they do surveys, when the U.S. Geological um, Survey goes out and tests waters and streams and stuff, they're just finding a tremendous number of streams that contain agricultural chemicals and, and even a scary amount of wells. Not the majority of wells, but a lot of wells, which are 
you know, the most common rural water supply for a farm, um, have, have chemicals or bacteria in them, and these cause health problems. And is that the sort of thing you want on your organic farm, you know? So, so that's, and, and the routine for testing your water is pretty much the same as testing the soil. You find out, you go on the State Department of Health website or De- Department of Natural Resources, whoever handles private water supplies, find out where the water testing labs are, call them, get instructions on how to pull a sample, and send it in and get it tested. And they will often tell you, well, you know, arsenic's a problem in your area because you have large poultry operations and they put arsenic in their feed, and so you probably ought to have it tested for arsenic as well. That's, these are things that they can tell you there. So I'd highly recommend it. And then I'm running on here. So you've got to own the water, you, gotta, you want clean water, and last of all, you've got to have enough water. You know, because wells do run dry and and ponds dry up. And if you run out of water, there is nothing you can do. I suppose you could pay to get it trucked in, but, you know, mm-hmm. we're all sitting on piles of money out here to have that done. So you you really want to go out, get the well driller's report from the courthouse, find out how old that well is, how many gallons per minute it was producing. You can go online to state extension websites, find out if for your region, you know, how many gallons of water per day, per week, per month, per season are required to grow a crop of vegetables or raise a beef cow and calf and stuff like that. And you can kind of figure out how much you need and whether it's going to be available. Thank you. Now, speaking of fertilizers, you mentioned, uh, or actually you mentioned fowl and uh, the fact that they use arsenic in some of the feed. Um, Why are fowl beneficial, and how do they actually help with things like reducing the flea and tick population? You said fowl or? uh, Birds, um, uh, poultry. Oh, I don't think there's flea and tick problems in those confined poultry operations. No, but <laughs> they, simple. chickens are wonderful at uh, just um, eating all all sorts of different uh, oh, they're insects fantastic. and whatnot. Yeah, ours ours we have laying hens. Um, I, I don't. I used to keep meat chickens too and, and butcher all those, but um, now we've outsourced that to another local farmer. But we let our uh, laying hens run in the yard, and boy, they keep it picked clean. Plus. As I once read, they're they're like living lawn ornaments. You know, they're just hilarious. They're running around doing all sorts of things, getting all the all the. And we have a huge wood tick problem here in northern Wisconsin. They clean up the ticks and they're entertainment besides. So yeah, uh, so many of these animals have they're multi-purpose. You know, cows you just you don't just eat them. We also get all that manure out of them, and they keep our pastures looking beautiful with their mowing. It's wonderful. And, you know, it's interesting when it comes to certain animals, uh, for example, with geese, geese are excellent watchdogs. If you have even two geese uh, and they're woken up in, in the middle of the night, they will sound off the alarms, and if you have anything that's inside your barn, uh, you better believe you will hear it. Not to mention the fact that uh, the same thing if you have wildlife that... Um, uh, is approaching. They, you know, they they do run and they are very loud. <laughs> but <laughs> I've what's, seen that. Yeah. Yeah. But what's also great is that uh, you know, once again, as you pointed out, they th- with the chickens, they they pretty much eat anything that they can uh, scratch at, and especially some of the fleas and ticks and whatnot. But a lot of people also opt to buy guinea hens uh, and. It's interesting that in many of the suburban areas, people won't have laying hens, but they will have guinea hens. 
Uh-huh. They're kind of noisy, but they do yeah. uh, they do wonders when it comes to dealing with fleas and ticks. Uh, yeah. And you know, it, it's something that people do consider. But once again, it is a big responsibility. You have to have the proper housing for them, and also you have to know how to feed them and handle them and care for them. And you know, it's just uh, a different area that unfortunately we won't have time to talk about today. But mm-hmm. it's just something that you should definitely consider. Now, well, yeah, but but we should add, um, it doesn't have to be hugely expensive. You know, a hen doesn't need a condominium hen hoop. They can, or hen coop. They they can live in pretty. Um, you, you can put a great coop together for very little money, as long as they are warm and dry and out of the wind and have food and grit and water. It's there's a lot of it's just common sense, you know, and just watching what they need. But anyways, you go on. <laughs> thank you. Uh, my next question. Uh, is about genetic diversity. Now, you mentioned, or actually, excuse me, you wrote about the Sand Hill Preservation Center in Calamus, Iowa. Why is it that, that was fantastic. Now, why is it that diversity is not very common there? I mean, you don't really think about this, and I'm glad that you pointed that out because I thought that that was so profound, and it's really very thought-provoking because if more people understand why it's really essential to good, healthy soil, and not, not just that, but uh, balance in nature, then they'll understand the importance of diversity. So yeah. can you explain why it's so important? I, I can't possibly put it better than Edward O. Wilson, who's a professor emeritus from Harvard University and has been... Um, he's written several wonderful, wonderful books on this and related topics. And I to boil it down... Diversity equals resilience, and that, that is his words, not mine. The more diversity you have, the, the more sustainable system your system will be, the more easily it will recover from the inevitable um, disasters and crises, the tornadoes and the fires and the insect outbreaks and things like that, and the more beautiful it will be. I, you know, looking out at a landscape of, of pastures and trees and garden and the little cornfield over there, I'm walking around my <laughs> house right now looking out at this, um, is so much more interesting and it supports so many different little niche habitats than a big, you know, thousand-acre cornfield. So it's just diversity in a way is just common sense. We We want to live here on this planet and keep it, fertile and productive for as long as we can and we're discovering time after time after time that you cannot do that systems are not sustainable if they don't have diversity they become fragile they crash and they don't recover easily now can you talk about the situation in Calamus, iowa at the sand hill preservation center and why is it very common there why is diversity very common there, or is it no, not? No, why is it not very common there? Um, I am trying to recall. <laughs> well, it's, it's a very heavily um, farmed area, but they generally have, uh, you know, they, they, the farms generally grow one particular crop, and um, from what you wrote about with the Sand Hill Preservation Center, that presented itself as a very unique situation. Yeah, well, what happens, and you, you see this in, in any community, and it's, it's probably more common the further west you go, is when you get um, 
a lot of it's caused, most of it's caused by humans. Um, these systems, these areas were naturally diverse before we came in, plowed everything under, and planted one plant. And when you do that, um, it's not like you've just replaced that little plant community. You've deprived all the other organisms that depended on that um, particular area for niche habitats, for different plants that they utilize for food or shelter or, or nesting. Um, that's all gone now. So you don't just take out the grasses, you're taking out everything. And the more you do that, the less room there is left for all these other things. It's, it's as if we went into a city and you took down all the buildings and took out the sewer system and the water supply and the electricity and just left, you know, like the roads. Nobody would live there. You couldn't. You couldn't support yourself. And that's exactly what we've done out in these um, big agricultural areas is you've taken away the buildings and the water supply and the food supply and everything and left nothing but, you know, maybe their roads so they can walk around. So they all leave. And that's what happens to your biodiversity. Thank you. Um, now, we're getting to the end of our show, but uh, there's so many different things that we could talk about. But I know, I feel like people... every question opens up like this whole Pandora's box of things that you need to think about. But anyways, yes? Now, one of the things that I did want to talk about uh, has, uh, deals with uh, concentrated animal feeding operations. Now, for mm -hmm. people that are looking to raise livestock, and poultry, why is this a bad way to raise livestock? And also, can you explain exactly what it is? Uh, a cancer, uh, the CAFOs, they call them, Concentrated yep. Animal Feeding Operations, um, is kind of a catch-all term for, or I shouldn't and they often, and I've heard it called confined animal feeding operations, too, which is probably closer to the truth. Um, it's a catch-all term for any time you're putting large numbers of livestock in a small area and holding them there and that's how you raise them. They get their feed and their water, and they're usually standing in their poop, and uh, there's a lot of reasons. If if I, <laughs> it's just so, to me it's so common sense. I mean, how can we not understand that this is a bad idea? If I took, you know, if I had taken my three kids and just put them in a closet for their whole lives, and I just turned the lights on every 12 hours and then turned them off every 12 hours, and I gave them all the good food they wanted, and, you know, cleaned them up and everything like that, would they still grow out to be healthy, normal children? No. You cannot raise uh, an organism like a chicken or a cow or a pig or a sheep that was designed by nature to be outside and digging and eating and rolling and, you know, getting hot in the summer and cold in the winter. And um, that's just how they're designed to function. And you can't put them in a in a barn with, you know, 800 other animals crowded together where they have to stand on cement their whole lives and never move much and expect them to be healthy themselves or healthy for us to eat. It just doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. And the thing is, is that there's a reason why, especially if you're raising livestock and poultry, that they need the room that they need to in order to live because they're healthier that way. And unfortunately, oh, yeah. with these uh, what they call factory farms, you're basically looking at a, a situation where the animals are not allowed to live as nature intended them to, and they're being fed all sorts of different growth hormones and different chemicals and mm -hmm. antibiotics because of the fact that when they're in that type of close quarters where they're not exercising, they're not able to do the things that they need to do, and they're just basically 
existing in fe- in their own fecal matter, not to mention mm-hmm. the fact that um, it, it, the food that they're being given is all chemicals. There's nothing uh, natural about it. What you're going to get is meat that is also going to be chock-filled with the same chemicals. And, you know, it's not a win-win situation. It's a very cheap method of raising livestock. It's not humane in any way. And it's uh, it's unhealthy to just consume something that's being raised in an unhealthy capacity. But yet yeah. people still don't understand that. Well, and, and it's interesting because I have thought a lot about this. When I was reporting for the farm paper, I didn't cover just organic farms. I covered a lot of conventional farms. And I do want to put this caveat out there that um, just because a farmer has a lot of animals doesn't necessarily mean they're doing a bad job. They might be doing a really good job. We have some big dairy farms um, that use rotational grazing, and so those animals are out. They're getting fresh pasture every day, um, and, and they're fabulous operations. And I say, my hat's off to them. You know, there's big beef operations that really have it down. So, so. A farm, because it's big, is not de facto bad. So let me just put that out there. And the second thing is, um, yeah, a lot of them are bad. They're they're um, generating more manure than they have land to spread it on. They're putting antibiotics in the feed, not just to keep the animals healthy, but also because a low dose of antibiotics um, actually promotes faster growth. Um, that has documented, it's documented now clearly over and over and again that this contributes to the contribution um, creation of superbugs. So we're we're creating these super pathogens that are not only going to start in, that are infecting our animals. They're starting to infect us too. This is bad. You're not giving them the um, basic nutritional needs of their diet. And if it's not in your animals and it's not in your soil, it's not going to be in the food we eat. It's not going to be in us. Hmm. Wonder why we're having health problems connected to diet. You know, no no big <laughs> leap there. Um, so it just it it doesn't make sense to put a thousand cows in a concrete barn and keep them shut up for the whole life and and think they're going to produce healthy milk. I, it just it just doesn't make any sense. I I agree with you. It's not the size of the farm; it's how it's managed. And yep. I remember watching something on the local news with this duck farm, and I, I was kind of annoyed because I was taught uh, everything that I learned. I learned from my father, and my father was very well educated. Mm-hmm. And he was also very considerate of the environment. And I remember, I remember this, the owner of this duck farm. He took an egg that was about to hatch, and he basically broke apart. The, the, the duckling had begun to chip away, and there was, you know, a little, little teeny tiny section that the duck had, the duckling had, begun to chip away. And he pulled off the rest of the shell to pull out the duckling. And that's oh, you can't do something that. that you don't do. And, oh. you know, this particular gentleman is selling ducks uh, for uh, human consumption, and I would not buy anything. I don't eat meat at this point in my life, but if I did, I definitely would not buy it from a person who treats his animals in that fashion. You just don't do that. Just the same as with butterflies. You don't pull them out of the cocoon. It's part of the natural process that they must go through in order yeah, well, to become you know, healthy. You, you think you're trying to help, but you really aren't. In fact, you may be doing quite a bit of harm. But this is an argument for anybody who is not farming but would like to eat healthy food. Go to your local 
farmers because um, those are the people that you can meet them in person and talk to them about how they farm and look at their food and maybe even go out to their farms and see things and then you know where your food's coming from and how it's raised plus you're supporting you know probably a young organic farmer that's trying to get on their feet and maybe a real addition to the neighborhood so that's that's a real important point is to to get out there and, and educate yourself about this and meet your local farmers. You know, and it's it's also a great way to learn the things that they're practicing on their own farms. And people are not quiet when it comes to different things that they're implementing, uh, whether it's a new method or they're taking something that they learned that was a practice many years ago or if they've just come up with a very unique way to handle a particular problem or, you know, just a different method that they've come up with, people are more than happy to talk about it because they're very proud of what they do. And that is a very good sign uh, to see, especially when people are so enthusiastic and they really want you to be part of what they're doing because they really love what they do. And that's that's very healthy. Yeah. Um, now, my last question for you is, what are some good farming planning resources that you can suggest for our audience? Oh, my. <laughs> there are many out there. I have my favorites. And uh, I guess I would say uh, the first place I would go online is to the ATRA website. That um, It stands for Appropriate Technology Transfer for Rural Areas. It was fabulous when I started farming. And they're ongoing, except they, they lost their federal funding at one point. And then it, they all kind of it disappeared for a while, but it's back now, and it's better than ever. But it's now part of the National Agricultural Library. So you have to kind of Google National Colleges. It's the NCAT ATRA project. So and it's that, ATRA, A-T-R-A? A-T-R-A, at NCAT, N-C-A-T. It's a fabulous site. Most of them, they've got over 300 publications on every aspect of sustainable and organic farming that you can imagine. Most of them are free. They have a helpline you can call for free and say, gee, I don't get this, and they will help you figure out the answer. They have, and that website will guide you to internships and apprenticeships that are available on organic farms throughout the United States. It will guide you to business planning programs for new farmers. Um, it, it's just a kind of the first place you go if you're on the Internet and looking for information on how do I get started, how do I find the specific information I need. I would also suggest a couple other, um, I think MOSES, the Midwest Organic Sustainable Education Service, MOSES, is a tremendous resource. They offer training days. They offer all sorts of publications. They have, they sponsor one of the, the biggest organic farming conference in the country now, which takes place at the end of March in La Crosse, Wisconsin, every year. And they're just a, a lovely organization. They will bend over backwards to help you. Um, however, they're in the Midwest. I would, if I was out east in the northeast and also in the southeast, I would look at the, for the state or regional sustainable farming associations. They do a tremendous job. Um, on the west coast, I'm not quite so familiar there, but go to the Oregon TILF website. They have a tremendous um, number of resources there, and, and once you get into those websites, they will start linking you to everything else you might need to know. So start with ATRA, look at MOSES, look at the Sustainable Farming Associations, and so on. Thank you, Ann. And can you tell our audience about uh, your upcoming event at Mother Earth News? Uh, do, you, do you know what you're going to be speaking about? Oh, I do. <laughs> I figured it out. I'm so proud. I hope 
Um, I'll be talking about rotational grazing, which is absolutely essential to an organic livestock operation, and how to make hay, because most of most people who raise livestock um, use hay at some point, and it's good to know how to make it and all the little tricks that you can use. And also hey. I'll be talking about projects for your woods. Hay is very, very, uh, <laughs> it's very laborious, not to mention if you run out of hay, uh, that's also something that, uh, I know it's good to know where your resources are, but good quality hay is really what you really should be feeding all of your livestock. And thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. Your book is magnificent, or you, the Jim. Organic Farming Manual. We have to have you come back. I would be honored. Thank you so much. Folks, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon.